<laughs> nice to see you. My name is Darren, and uh, excited to open God's Word with you. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Genesis chapter 10. And uh, while you're turning to Genesis chapter 10, let me welcome those of you who might be guests, or you might be visiting with friends, or uh, in from the neighborhood, or whatever. We're always excited to have uh, regular family around here. We love having you guys here, but if you've got a guest with you, or if you're visiting us today, we want you to feel like family. So anything I can do to help with that process, answering questions, figuring out how to get you connected, let you know what's happening around here, I'm happy to do whatever I can to build a bridge so that this feels like home to you as well. But we're glad you're here. Now we're in an ongoing study in the book of Genesis, and I know for many of you, you've been looking forward to this Sunday for a while because I think for most people, Genesis 10 is a favorite. It's basically a long list of crazy names, right? So uh, you've probably been looking at it like, I can't wait until that Sunday when Darren reads the long list of crazy names and botches them terribly. That's what I'm about to do for you all. In fact, we didn't do a, uh, we didn't do a reading this morning. Normally you have somebody read the text. We're taking a large chunk of the Bible this morning. So we're taking all of Genesis 10 and most of Genesis 11. We're going we're gonna to press pause on Genesis 11, 1 through 9, which is the story of the Tower of Babel. We're going to come to that next week. But this morning we're going to take all of 10 and then chapter 11, verses 10 through the end. So it's a big chunk. And most of that uh, is made up with strange names and interesting places. And it feels like a long list of stuff that maybe you'd kind of go, should we even study this? I hope that you can hear me very clearly when I say, absolutely, we should study it. That there isn't a single solitary page in the Bible that God didn't give to us for our benefit to understand something of who he is and something of who he created us to be. So there's never a time we're going to skip it, even if there's a place that feels a little clunky or it feels a little convoluted. So we're going to read this together as we go. Um, Know that um, there is both... uh, original significance in the reason that Moses wrote it the way he did, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I think there's great application and and understanding for us, even in a text that might be historically complicated. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to advocate here for in your own study, and as you're reading the Bible, uh, resist the temptation to skip over parts that feel a little bit hard, right? Skip over the parts that feel hard. They taught us in Bible college, when you come to weird, complicated names, you just read them fast and with confidence, and no one will know you're not pronouncing them correctly, right? So this morning, I'm going to do a lot of that. And other than Larry, nobody else will know I'm not getting it right. And just watch him. He'll give you a thumbs down or a thumbs up if I get the pronunciation correct. What we have here in Genesis 10, as we start here, is is not really a genealogy. It might feel like a genealogy at first. And remember, we had already one genealogy when we were studying Genesis 5. In Genesis 5, we saw the 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And when we get to Genesis 11 here in a few minutes, we'll see the 10 generations from Noah to Abram. But what we have in Genesis 10 is, is actually not a genealogy. It's not a straight list of descendants and that sort of thing. What it really is, is more of a list of dispersion or a list of spread. In fact, if you have one of our Genesis journals and you're the kind of person who takes notes, as we read Genesis 10, you might want to underline or highlight the places where it says things like the people spread or they were extended or they divided or or they moved away from one another. Like what Genesis 10 is doing essentially for us is giving us a sense of the descendants of Noah, Japheth, Ham and Shem, and sort of where their uh, various descendants settled. So it's giving us some geographic information. It's giving us a little bit of tribal information. In fact, the Genesis 10 is a little convoluted because sometimes it uses proper names, like for individuals, and sometimes it uses names for people groups, and sometimes it uses names for regions. And so because of that, it, it's, a, it's a little bit complex. But I want us to look at it both to understand what's going on here and to see what it is that Moses was trying to do. Moses is trying to show 
In Genesis 10, the ongoing progression we've already seen examples of. So, right, for a second, don't just think about literally what's in 10. We'll look at that. But I want you to step away from it and take a macro view and recognize that there is a story that the Bible tells. It's been telling this story from Genesis 1. It tells it in Genesis 1 through 11. It will continue to tell the story again and again and again. And the story is essentially this, that God created the earth good. He created the earth in wholeness and in harmony and in unity, right? In the garden, there is this wholeness between God and man, between man and woman, between man, woman, God, and nature. There's a wholeness. There's what we would call a shalom, right? There's peace and unity, community, if you will. And then when we were studying Genesis 3, we saw that sin was introduced. People uh, exercised their own will and they decided to disobey God. And when they did that, then brokenness enters in, right? And when brokenness enters in, all of a sudden we don't see wholeness and unity. We don't see wholeness between God and man. We don't see wholeness between man and woman. We don't see wholeness between man and woman and God and nature. There's brokenness throughout. And what we've seen in Genesis 1 through 11 is the continuing extension of that brokenness, of that otherness of that unwholeness, if you will, right? And Genesis 10 is a perfect example of this. As we continue to watch things sort of unspool from Genesis 1 and 2, when things were whole and united and in community, when there was fellowship, what we've seen is otherness just continue to advance. In Genesis 10, that's why I said you can underline spread or extend, because we're just watching people divide in 10. We do it through the descendants of three sons of Noah. Let's just do it a little bit at a time here. Let's read the first section uh, in in sort of laying out the dispersion of the descendants of Japheth. It says in verse 1 of Genesis 10, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togermash, uh, excuse me, Togermah. Don't, I saw the thumbs down. Hold on to that. Uh, number four, the sons of Javan, uh, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. And from these, the coastland people spread in their lands. There's that word spread. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Okay, so he's giving us kind of a quick summary of the way that the descendants of Japheth spread out. He starts with Japheth because Japheth is furthest away. They end up settling in the places that are furthest away from where Moses' original audience would have been when he wrote the book of Genesis. There are those who are furthest away from the conflict that will ensue as they enter into the promised land. The descendants of Japheth, for the most part, are people that the the nation of Israel at Moses' time would have heard of, but they're so far away as to not be super relevant to their day-in, day-out lives. They're family, but they're far away, right? And so he gives us that first. In essence, what Moses is doing in Genesis 10 is kind of giving us a lay of the land. Who is where? Where do they come from? What's their background? What's their history? He's kind of identifying that. It was uh, interesting. Yesterday, I took... um, I went with a group of people and we took our, I've got a freshman son who's starting at, uh, at Fullerton High School tomorrow on Monday. And so we, there are several of us who have freshman kids starting this year and we took our, our kids to, to Fullerton High uh, just to kind of gather up with them and pray for them, kind of walk them around, go, here's the library, here's the cafeteria, you know, here's where things are at, science building, whatever. So we went and we did that. And then as, as we're kind of giving them the tour, there's this moment where Scott Ballon, who was with us, he goes, now uh, at lunchtime, you guys are going to want to gather around this tree right here in the main quad. You gather around this tree. And when you get around the tree, the freshman, you got to be really careful 
because everybody's going to be throwing tomatoes at you. They're going to try and hit you with tomatoes. They're going to try and take you out. The seniors, they all hang over here, so the tomatoes will primarily be coming from a southward direction. He's giving them, like, all this instruction, and I don't think that's making my son feel safer. You know what I'm saying? Like, the whole point was to walk around and be like, now you know where you're at. But in some ways, it was like, now you know how you're going to be attacked. Like, where the conflict's going to come from, where, you know, like, which trash cans they're going to dump you into or whatever, right? In essence, what, what Moses is doing when he gives this, and the Holy Spirit through Moses, he's saying, this is where people are. And in some ways, for the people who are about to go into the promised land, he's giving them a sense of, in some cases, who their opponents will be where the conflict will come from, where that conflict has arisen from, right? What its origin is and where it currently rests. But with Japheth in particular and his descendants, they're the furthest out. They're the furthest extended. It's a small group here and he's listing them so that we understand the flow of history. He also gives us some categories. So don't miss this in five. He says, from these, the coastland people spread in their lands, in their languages, by their clans, and in their nations. We'll see that pattern repeat again. But they're basically separating themselves based on the way they talk, where they've decided to live, right? By their sort of political factions and also um, just, just even by their people groups, like who, who they have things in common with. That's, that word clans could be translated tribes and maybe in some of your Bible it says tribes. But there's this division. Japheth, they go off in their languages, in, the, in their locations, in their tribes, and in sort of their nation or in their political factions, right? Now he's going to go on and he's going to explain to us the sons of Ham, which if you remember and you were with us last week, the sons of Ham were prophesied over when Noah gave a curse. And he said, based on the character and the wickedness of Ham, it follows suit that the descendants of Ham, Canaan and his descendants, will be problematic. They'll be wicked, and as a result, they'll be servants. These are those descendants now that Moses is laying out for us as he writes Genesis 10, 6 and following. He says this, The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. By the way, as we read the descendants of Ham, I would want you to put your radar up for names you've heard before. There are several of them in this list. Already, we've talked about Canaan and Egypt. Think about Canaan and Egypt as names you might identify. I certainly would identify both of those as being people, groups that have been in opposition to the people of God. So in some cases, we're seeing now that the descendants of Ham are adversarial. It says, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtica. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. You guys know that saying. We say this all the time. Uh, Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. We regularly are posting that places. A familiar phrase that all of us use. Uh, That's where the phrase came from. Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom, that's Nimrod's kingdom, was Babel. You've probably heard of that. Erech, Akkad, and Kalna. In the land of Shinar. And from, the land, uh, from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kazluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Aridvites, the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. 
These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. There's that distinction again. What creates the division? Their lands, their language, their nation, and their peoples, right? Their nations, right? And uh, their clans, right? So here's what I want you to see. The familiar names, right? You recognize some of them? Egypt, who would end up enslaving Israel. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah who were ultimately punished for their wickedness, right? You think about Assyria. Think about the word Nineveh, right? You think about the name Nineveh. That might recognize or ring a bell for you. Nineveh was the city that God came to Jonah and said, I'm going to utterly destroy this city because of their wickedness if they don't repent. So what we see from the descendants of Ham are the names of people who in some ways are the enemies of God and the enemies of the people of God, right? Not exclusively, but we certainly see that thread woven through. So that should put a little bit of a marker in our mind to say that Noah, when he placed the curse that he placed, when he made the prophecy that he made last week, he he was reading that thing right. He was saying the descendants of Ham will follow after the ways of Ham and there will be prevalent wickedness in those people. So we see the descendants of Jephthah. We see the descendants of Ham. And then let's go on here and look at... Oh, by the way, I should just mention the thing about Nimrod really quick because I made a joke. There's lots of scrutiny and speculation about whether Nimrod was a, a mighty good hunter or a mighty evil hunter and whether or not he was actually a follower of God because it says a mighty hunter before the Lord. But when some people look at the original language, they'll say that the implication there is that he was a, a wicked man, right? That he was a wicked man... It's hard to sort of untangle that, so I don't want to get too deep into it. Here's what I want to say. There's a certain generation of us in the room, not all of us, but for some of us, when we think of the the name Nimrod, we think of that as like a synonym with the word knucklehead, right? When somebody's a Nimrod, they're kind of a dummy, right? You've heard that before? That does not come from the Bible. It comes from Bugs Bunny. And uh, I'm not making a joke. I'm not making a joke. I did a little work on this this week. And it turns out that in the 40s, uh, Bugs Bunny, looking to slander... Elmer Fudd, who was a mighty hunter, by the way, called him a Nimrod, right? Which shows, number one, Bugs Bunny knows his Bible. Number two, that if you do that, if you use the Bible to slander somebody, it can stick. And so for high school students, college students, if you guys aren't currently using the word Nimrod, maybe you want to pick that up, right? Uh, But that's where that comes from. If you're like, I didn't think of Nimrod as being somebody mighty. I thought of it being somebody kind of dumb. Bugs Bunny did that to you, and you have Hanna-Barbera or whoever to thank. It's not... Warner Brothers, sorry, forgive me. That'll come back around. Somebody's sending me an email right now, sorry. Let's look here at the descendants of Shem. Come back to me uh, with Genesis 10, look at verse 21. It says, to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. These two words are interesting, Shem and Eber. Shem, by the way, is where we will ultimately hear of the Shemitic or the Semitic peoples, right? If you know of Semitic peoples, that's, those are the descendants of Shem. Not only that, Eber would be the one who gives his name to the word Hebrew. When we talk about the Hebrew people, they have Eber as their ancestor. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. Uh, There is some question about whether or not that's referring to the story of the Tower of Babel, which we'll read next week, when the earth was divided by their languages, or if that's talking maybe more about, um, some people say that might be pointing at continental drift. There's, There's all kinds of guesses. There's lots of guesses. Let's not spend too much time on guesses. But it says here in 25, to Eber were born two, two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Hazamarveth, Jera, 
Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. And these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. There's that distinction again. By their clans, languages, lands, and nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, as I'm reading all of that, you're probably going, I don't think you pronounced that one right. I don't know if this, you know, like your your mind might be wandering. Draw it back in and let me say just a couple things. First of all, for the first audience who read what Moses had written here, for the first audience who read it, this would have been very helpful. These would have been names they recognized. This would have been names that they'd heard in oral tradition. For some of them, they would be the names of people they knew they were crossing the river to go into the promised land and fight in battle. These were names that allowed them to find a rootedness in their own history and in their own background. For us, it's a little bit different because we don't find much of our identity in the people we come from necessarily. But in this time, this history of where we came from and who our people are was a big deal. So for the first audience, they would have listened to this and they would have been like, yeah, we, we know these people. We kind of have an understanding, but it's helpful to see how it all works. For us, we don't have that as much. So why did God include Genesis 10 and 11 in our text? He knew we would be alive in 2021. He knew we'd be sitting here this morning looking at it going like, I don't know any of these people. I don't know what they did. Why should I care? Well, let me tell you why I think it's here. Because again, there was a macro story to the Bible. And that macro story actually is revealed really clearly in Genesis 1 through 11. We're almost finished with the second section of our study in Genesis, which we've called in the aftermath, walking with God in the aftermath, in the aftermath of the fall. And what we've seen since the fall of man is increasing spread and increasing division and increasing brokenness, tribalism and separation. The first thing we see that you want to sort of pay attention to and recognize as we look at Genesis 10 is that we have a common past. We have a common past with these people. That we all essentially come from the same ancestor. We have a common ancestry, right? And no matter how you look at the science, no matter how you read it, what we understand is that Moses is trying to articulate to us, we're all the same family. I've pointed out several times in the text that they divide over where they live and how they talk and what their politics look like, but there is no speaking here of race. They are not divided in race. Race as a distinction, essentially just pointing out sort of external physical features of people is not part of this division. And it doesn't speak to the different people, although they're spread as being somehow superior or lesser, because why? They're they're all the same species. They all come from the same place. They all come from the same parentage. One of the things I want you to see that Moses is saying, that God is saying to us, is that we are family. We have a common past. Common heritage, right? That we come from the same place. Yes, we look different. Yes, we've had different experiences. Yes, we've had different lives. But the distinctions that can sometimes be made, all they do is lead us into what I would sort of say here is my second point, which is a common present in which we see all kinds of tribalism. But this common past is important. It's important for us to see the interrelatedness of all people. Yes, there are different clans, languages, locations, but we're the same family, God himself oversees this. It says in Acts chapter 17, in Acts 17, 26 and following, Paul says this in the midst of a longer sermon. He says, and he, that's God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. 
God created this world, but we come from one ancestor that we would seek God, right? That we would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I would want you first to see as we look at this story of dispersion that we come from one common place and that familial nature should drive us in our interactions with other people. It should drive us in the way we look at our fellow man and our fellow woman. We should recognize that we are the same. We are not so different. We are not so distinct that we can't find common ground, that we can't find harmony. We are made in the very same image. No matter what you look like, no matter what your skin color, no matter what kind of vocation you have, no matter what language you speak, we are made in the same image of God equally. We come from the same image. We as human beings have the same purpose, which is to glorify God and have a relationship with him. There is the same expectation of God placed upon all of us universally. And we all have the same need. We are all universally broken. We all have the need for wholeness. We all have the need for reconciliation. We all have the need for restoration. We all have the need for a savior, right? So there is this universal sense of our common past that should drive us in the way we treat one another. We see that in Genesis 10. Not only do we see a common past, and I've already sort of alluded to this, but we also see a common present. There is a common present here, and that common present that we have with the people in Genesis 10 is division, separation, tribalism, a sense of like, well, we want to live over here. We talk like this. You guys talk like that. Why don't you go your way? Oh, you look like this. You look like that. We could, I was kind of joking with the team this morning as we were getting started. I was was joking about the fact that you could take Genesis 10 and put in whatever your tribes are. You could just sub it in. Instead of the Amalekites and the Girgashites and the Hemites and the whatever, you could just drop in like, oh yeah, and then the anti-vaxxers went over there. And then the people who love vaccination, they went over there. And the people who vote like this went over here. And the Dodgers fans went over there. And the people who love the angels are over here. We just, you just put it in there. Generationally, human beings have been doing this since Genesis 10 and before. Why? Because the brokenness of sin, the selfishness, the pride, the, want, the desire to elevate myself over somebody else based on where they like to live or how they look or how they talk, right? We just want to separate and separate. It's not any better today. It's worse today. It's worse today. The sin and the selfishness has led us to even greater division. So look, not only do we have a common past, you guys, we have a common present. We're, we're in the middle. This is us. We're spreading out. We're getting further and further spread into tinier and tinier Selfish groups, common present and a common past. It, it lines up with, uh, with the story of the Bible, which is this ongoing increase in otherness, the lack of harmony, the lack of wholeness, the lack of community and communion, that brokenness that comes from sin. And it continues into today, but we know there's a bigger story. And this sort of gets me to my third point this morning. Not only do we have a common past, not only do we have a common present, which is division and tribalism, But we have a common future. We have a common future that God will restore it all. That he will unite all things. That he will bless all the peoples of the earth through Abram. There's an interesting thing that Moses does here. In Genesis 10, he shows the spread. He shows the extension. He shows the division. These people went here and these people went there and these people over here. Everybody spread out based on how they talk and where they want to live and what their little factions like. And then he gets to 11. He tells the story of Babel, which we'll look at next week. And then at the last part of 11, he starts to narrow the focus. He's given us a broad picture 
of division. And now what he does is he starts to wrap his arms around and focus us in on where he's headed. Look with me, if you will, at Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, starting in verse 10, we see an actual genealogy. Here we see the genealogy, the 10 generations from Noah to Abram, who would become Abraham. We'll study that in the weeks ahead. But watch the way that God brings that division into a central focus. It says this in verse 10 of Genesis 11. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Riu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Riu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Riu had lived 32 years, he fathered Surug. And Riu lived after he fathered Surug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, if you're an original audience member, right after Moses first lays this out, you hear Abram's name and it's like, yeah, here he is, Father Abraham. This is the one God made the covenant with. This is what we're doing here. For us, maybe not as much, but for them, once you get to Abram's name, it's exciting. So he expands on that. Look at 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Something really interesting in the genealogy portion of Genesis 11. If you remember our study in Genesis 5, the way Genesis 5 is organized is it says, so-and-so lived 870 years, and then he died. And then his son lived 750 years, and then he died. It's all referenced and organized in terms of death, right? Go back and look at Genesis 5. They died, they died, they died, and then they died. Interestingly, when we get to Genesis 11, we see the second genealogy from Noah to Abram, and it's not framed in terms of death anymore. It's framed in terms of life. Look at it again. What it says is this person had a son, and then they lived another 200 years, and then they lived, and then they lived. That's not accidental. That transition is to show that there is a movement from the death and the brokenness of sin, that unwholeness that happened as a result of sin, a movement away from death toward life. And that life, that restoration, that common future that we all can have, that we all can share in, that common future is accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come from the line of one man, this man, Abram, we're hearing about, we're going to study him in the days ahead. But it will not only come that restoration and that reconciliation, that return to wholeness will not only come through the person of Jesus Christ. It will come through the way the person of Jesus Christ establishes himself in community, both in the community of Israel in the Old Testament 
and in the community of the church in the new. It isn't just wholeness between God and man. It's wholeness between man and man and God and the world. And that happens through Israel, through Abram, through the church, which is us, the body of Christ. There is a foreshadowing in Genesis 10 and 11 of the fact that everything was wrecked. People were divided in their tribes and their clans and their nations and their languages. And then God sort of brings in this focus and says, but I have a plan to work through this people, the people of Abram, the people of Abraham, my people, Israel, to bring about restoration and reconciliation and wholeness again. So what do you see through these, all these lists of names you've never heard of before? Well, what you see is that God's plan is at work. Not only that we have a common past, that we have a common present, which rests in tribalism and brokenness, but that there is a potential, there is a potential common future for those who are in Christ. It's, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but in Genesis 12, in Genesis 12, 3, which we'll look at in a few weeks, Genesis 12, 3, God comes to Abram and he says, through you, I will bless all the peoples of the earth, right? So all those people, no matter if they live in the north or the south, whether they live over here, over there, all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Well, he's not just talking about through Abram. He's talking about Abram's descendant, the Lord Jesus. And he's also talking about the people of Abram, the people of Israel, who we've been grafted into, right? He's talking about unity that God will bring. God says that all the way here at the beginning of this next section in 12. I'm going to bless all the people. No matter how divided they appear, I will bring them together. I love the fact that by the time we get to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and following, listen to this. John the Revelator says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all languages. You ever heard those distinctions before? It's the very things that divided people in the Old Testament now are cause for unification around the throne of God. There's a day coming, a common future, when every nation and every language and every people and every tribe will lock arms together. Here's what it says. There was a huge multitude of people from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is a day when that division will be undone, when the wholeness that we had at first will be restored. That is the ongoing story of the Bible. That is the ongoing work of God through his people restoration, reconciliation. Jesus is instrumental to this. In Colossians 1, uh, in Colossians 1, 19, it says, for in him, and that's speaking of Christ, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says similarly, in him we have redemption through his blood, The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is the plan of God in Christ for all time? Wholeness again. Restoration. Reconciliation. Not all this division. Not all this tribalism. Not all this spread. To be back together. Why? Because we have a common past. We have a common future. And it's the saving work of Christ. Even the the descendants of Japheth, you might remember in Noah's curse, he says, uh, I hope, uh, he says, uh, someday the the descendants of Japheth will come and live in the tent of Shem, right? And Shem, those are the Semitic people, the, the, the people that descend from Japheth are the Gentile people. Well, I love what it says in Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, 26 and following, listen to this fulfillment of what Noah said. 
It says in Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you were all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. What is the story of the Bible? What do we look at this long list of names and places and go, what does this mean? What it's saying is there's a story here. A common past, a common present, and a common future of restoration and reconciliation through Christ. You know, the reality is we, we read this list of names and, uh, and we go, yeah, I don't, I don't really know much about them. I don't know if you've ever found like an old photo of your great-grandfather and you find an old picture of your great-grandfather and you go, oh man, like, I don't know, it seems like maybe he was a cowboy, you know? Or I see him next to this old Chevy pickup and I think, man, he seems so cool, you know, his sleeves are rolled up and whatever. Like my grandfather must have been really cool. You look at these old pictures and you just kind of fill in the gaps, right? You know the days of that happening are over. Because your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren aren't going to look at photos of you and wonder if you're a cowboy. They're going to immediately download the archive of your Facebook posts. And they're going to know exactly what you were like. They're going to download the archive of your Instagram. They're going to download the archive of, of whatever. It's all in the cloud. It's all being preserved. Nobody's going to look at an old black and white photo and go, I wonder what grandma was like. They're going to read what you wrote and they're going to go, she clearly loves spaghetti but she kind of hated a bunch of other stuff. And she seems maybe like she's more defined by what she was against than what she's for. She spends a lot of time talking about her own land and her own language and her own nation and her own people. I don't want to be that. In some ways, we'd be better off to just have an old black and white picture. But here's what, here's what this view does for us. If we can recognize a common past and we can recognize a common present in all of its tribalism and we can recognize a common future in the saving work of Christ, it allows us to get our eyes up above our tribe and our language and our people. It allows us to lift our head and go, no, 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 there's a bigger story here that isn't just me and the people like me. It's a bigger story of God bringing all this together, all children of Abraham, all in Christ. No Greek, no slave, no free, no Scythian, no man, no woman. We're, we're his his people, that story of reconciliation and restoration, he will accomplish, but we can participate in. We can start writing chapters in that story today, the story of God that began in Genesis 1, that we see patterned through, verse, or through chapter 11, and then we will see patterned again and again and again and again. Wholeness, sin and brokenness, division, and restoration, reconciliation, right? We can be agents of that restoration and reconciliation in our day and age until our common future comes to be. Right? Until the Lord Jesus returns and perfects it all. We can be a part of that today, recognizing our common past, common present, and common future. That's why we've been called to be messengers of reconciliation. If you've been in this church for any period of time, you've heard me read this verse probably more than you care, but I love it. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and following says this, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them or entrusting to us the message of, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
we have the opportunity to tell the story in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. Tell the big story of what God is doing. Is there brokenness? Is there division? Is there hurt in our world? Absolutely. Is that the way the story ends? Absolutely not. And we can be an agent of change in this day and age to to recognize that God has called us to carry the message of reconciliation to the world. Not only reconciliation between God and man through Christ, but that reconciliation between God and man through Christ has a byproduct, and that is reconciliation between men and women, reconciliation between brothers and sisters, parents and children, workers and co-workers, Dodgers fans, Angels fans, you get it, right? Reconciliation, peace, shalom, the wholeness that God intended, he will restore. And we can look at a long list of names and go, yep, That's just like us. But praise God, there's a bigger story that this list points us to. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would help us to take a step back from just pronouncing weird names and thinking about strange foreign places and instead to look at the fact that we all have one family, that we all come from the same place, that we have more in common than we do that separates us. And God, maybe you give us the ability by your grace and through your power to set aside our preference for our lands and our language and our peoples and our tribes. And instead to recognize, God, that you are making us all one in you. I pray that we'd be instruments, that we would be ambassadors for that work, the common past, the common present, looking forward to the common future. As those who will trust in you are made one in you. Help us to be your ambassadors of that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.